0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. If you've been listening to the show, you know that we've covered practically every aspect of finance and money you can think of. There are a few strands left we still have to communicate with you about. I've welcomed back John Olegas, the founder of a company called Truth in Options, Stock Options Consultants. Now, John does something very unusual that most people in his position with his experience don't do. He is an authority on helping employees maximize and utilize their stock options. You see, stock options are not as simple as they appear because most of the stock options are never utilized properly for employees. Let me tell you a little bit about his background He's a graduate from Tulane University, where he captained the baseball team and set many of their pitching records. He applied his BA in mathematics and his competitive spirit to the real world of stock options. And in 1976, he became a member of the Pacific Stock Exchange in San Francisco trading and managing options positions in scores of different stocks. He joined with Blair Hall to create Options Research, the first service to provide theoretical options values to market makers and to the general public. In 1980, he became a member of the CBOE, where he personally traded more options in more diverse situations than any other trader. We have had him on before, and he really lays out the basics of employee stock options to advance tax and hedging strategies Like no other, but today we're going to talk about a whole new level and layer of what's going on in the marketplace. We're going to talk about the volatility index. We're going to talk about some very unusual and unscrupulous antics relative to the downgrade of the S and P. And we're going to talk about naked short selling. And he's going to explain a lot of things to you that you may not know, have never thought about and have not put together. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome John Olegi to its Rainmaking Time. Good morning.
1: Good morning to you, Kim. Thank you for inviting me, and I'll uh, try to be informative and easy to listen to. So first of all, there's a lot of talk about Standard & Poor's downgrading U.S. government debt to AA from AAA or AA+. Some people think that prior to that announcement, after the close on August 5th, which is a Friday since right before the weekend, they made that announcement And it seemed to be quite sudden. However, the stock market had dropped several days prior to that, right after the agreement was reached to avoid default. And there was all that hullabaloo about disagreements amongst uh, Obama and the Republicans. And they finally got an agreement on the second, or right before the second. And then on the next few days, you saw a big drop. And that preceded the announcement of the downgrade on government securities. So some people think that that drop, those several days, was done by people trading on inside information, which was put out either negligently or deliberately by people that were associated with Standard & Poor's. I believe that nothing big happens in the market without somebody doing insider trading.
0: I want to stop you right here. Are you skeptical? If you are, is your skeptical view actually filtering what's going on? Or do you really feel like you have signs and patterns that are showing insider trading?
1: Well, my experience is that nothing large happens without people trading on inside information.
0: Why do you say that?
1: Because every time a stock moves suddenly, like Bear Stearns was 70, and on Friday, March fourteenth, two 2008, it closed at 30 there was tremendous buying of puts before that drop. And then Friday after that drop, there was even more tremendous buying of puts and the stock opened at three and three quarters the following Monday. So that's a big event. And so there's always insider trading by tippees, either closely aligned with people that pull off the event or maybe a couple of steps down the line to disguise where they got the information. But no event takes place without insider trading because that's where most of the money is made by the traders, cheating on inside information. That's my view of being a market maker on the floor, trading a lot of options, and I've been the victim of that. I lost $600,000 in 1980 in the Santa Fe International takeover by the Kuwait Petroleum Company, okay? It was because of insider trading, and we were taking the other sides of those trades. Because they were paying these very high prices, and we played a theoretical game when they bid up the prices, we sell them and try to buy the stock and do positions, but you make yourself vulnerable to extreme moves, you see. So in that Santa Fe case, the SEC got $10 million returned or settled from these guys who were cheating, but the SEC was paid off to direct the distribution of those $10 million to their favorite people.
0: (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say. Don't you think the SEC is a complicit instrument and a player in allowing this?
1: Yeah, they're captured by the industry, and they just pretend to really try to catch the insiders, okay? They're not interested in catching James Diamond from J.P. Morgan, who violated Title 18, Section 208. Which is when he was sitting on the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and they gave $55 billion to J.P. Morgan, where he owned 3 million shares of stock, that's a violation, that's a felony. But the SEC could have gone after him, or the FBI could have gone after him. I called the FBI, and they say, call the SEC. Well, <laughs> But nevertheless, the the SEC pretends to try to catch these people, but they're not really interested in doing it. So who
0: buys these puts? Okay. I want to kind of get back to that downgrade and the tipping off point before the downgrade. How do you know and who's buying the puts? I just looked
1: at some articles that I wrote on my newsletter. I wrote an article on July the 12th, where I saw an increase in what they call the VIX, That's the volatility index of the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And it usually happens that when the stock market goes up, the VIX goes down. And there's some subtleties as to why that's the case. But a couple of days, I saw the VIX go up, not a whole lot, but go up when the market was up. That rarely happens. I believed it happened because people were buying out-of-the-money puts in the Standard and Poor's Index, and that bit up those puts and calls and made the VIX go up. And so I smelled a rat. I didn't know what was coming, but I put out the word that I thought that in the near future, there would be some event where the market's going to drop down. And so usually that happens when people are trading on inside information. So I think people were tipped as early as July the 12th to the downgrade. Okay, And so what happened was right after the agreement with the Republicans and the Democrats, they would avoid default and they would raise the debt limit or whatever they're going to do. You would have suspected that the market would have gone up, but it didn't. So the few days after that, it dropped. And then the downgrade came. You see, so I think that the drop prior to the downgrade was a result of people selling on the information that they knew the downgrade was coming, and then the following Monday the market was down 600. If you don't believe that they're trading on inside information, you can never be a market maker for too long. Because, you know, the general public, they think that the game is pretty honest. I think maybe 20 or 30 years ago it was a lot more honest than it is now because they put people in jail, you know, in those days. Yeah, they got mad off, and they got a couple of people here. But I think the SEC's captured. All they're doing is pretending, and this bit about this whistleblower.
0: What are you talking about? Explain it to us. Okay.
1: Well, the SEC now had allocated $45 million to pay off whistleblowers who can report cases of fraud or insider trading to the SEC, and the SEC will look at the information that's reported to them and then investigate, and if indeed the reporter of the fraud or the insider trading is correct, and he was more or less the first one or gave him substantial information to help the investigation, they will pay him a certain fee. Now, I don't know how they determine the fee, but that was initiated, I think, August the 12th this year. And so if you think that you have some information about, like, for example, Google announced about a week or 10 days ago that they were buying Motorola. Oh, no. Right. And several days before that, even though the market was dropping, there was a very large number of calls traded on Motorola, you see. And so people suspect that there was buying pre-announcement about Google going to buy Motorola. And there was. That might be a typical case of insider
0: trading. What if everybody's doing it, and the fact is that whether it's legal or not, it's standard practice?
1: Right, but, you know, they can't be too obvious about it. In other words, Bernanke or the CEO of Motorola can't go buy it in his own account, but he might tell his brother who tells his son-in-law, and he does it in a manner which is hard to determine. It was really a tip, you see. So they do those kind of things, and the SEC... Say, well, we don't know who bought those calls, or we don't know who bought the puts. Or maybe they do, and they know the guy who really tipped is too big to be prosecuted. Just like Mac, who still is, I believe, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, there was a guy the SEC was trying to take his deposition about a series of what he thought was inside information. This guy, who was a lawyer at the SEC, wanted to take his deposition... And the SEC fired him because he was too big to be prosecuted as the CEO of Morgan Stanley, okay? And there was a congressional investigation, but he was never put under oath because he wanted to take the deposition to get to the truth of the matter. And so he never did give the deposition. You see, now, if it was you or me, they'd force you to take the deposition, and if you want to defend yourself, you either have to tell them the truth or take the fifth. (laughs) You see? And so uh, big guys who are CEOs and stuff like that, they don't want to go into a deposition and have to take the fifth. That doesn't make them look too good.
0: (laughs) Can you go back for a minute here to the volatility index? I want you to explain what it is and what it does again, because I feel like we may have lost some of the audience members.
1: All right. The volatility index is an index that's created by the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And it's the value of certain out-of-the-money puts and calls on the Standard & Poor's 500 index future. In other words, there's an index of 500 different companies, all the large companies in the Standard & Poor's index, and it's more or less a very good barometer of what the market is doing. On the other hand, you have the Dow Jones index, which is just 30 companies and has a lot of oil companies. It's more stable but you have the Standard & Poor's Index of 500 stocks, and then you have the futures on the Standard & Poor's Index. In other words, if you want to be in the market, you want to be diversified into 500 different stocks, you can do it very efficiently by buying futures on the Standard & Poor's Index. Okay? Now, there's actually options, there's puts and calls on the index, and there's some puts and calls that are in the money, some are at the money and some are out of the money. Now they've created what they call the VIX, which is a compilation of certain out of the money calls and out of the money puts.
0: What does out of the money mean?
1: Out of the money means that if you have the right to buy the stock or buy the index at a specific price, for example, if you have the right to buy a stock at a hundred and the stock's trading at seventy five or eighty or eighty five or ninety, then those are the calls that give you the right to buy the stock at 100 or what we call out-of-the-money. If you have the right to buy the stock at 100 and the stock's trading at 125, those calls are called in-the-money. In other words, you have the right to buy something at 100 and you can go sell it tomorrow at 125, all right? Now, if you have the right to buy it at 100 and it's still at 75, Those are out of the money, and nobody's going to exercise their right to buy the stock at 100 when it's trading at 75 because it's going to lose $25. So you have out of the money calls and out of the money puts. Puts give you the right to sell the stock at a specific price throughout a specific period of time. If the stock is trading at 75 and you have the right to sell it at 100 because you have the puts, in other words, if you own puts and you have the right to sell it at 100 and it's trading at 75, those puts are in the money. Okay, if you have the right to sell the stock at 50 and the stock's trading at 75, those puts are called out of the money puts. The puts and the calls that are out of the money, in other words, they don't give you the right to exercise right away and then sell at a profit, but it's all based on the prospects of the stock going up. You can buy out of the money puts quite cheap You know, just like in Bear Stearns, when the stock was 70, there was people who were buying the puts with five days to expiration with the right to sell the stock at 20, when it
0: was traded at 70. That would tip me that that's inside information. Right. So
1: there was lots of those buying. Okay. But there was nobody charged with insider trading in Bear Stearns. You know, even though you had all of this commotion about naked short selling, and manipulation of the stock. I've heard Mr. Christopher Cox talk about they're going to investigate naked short selling or guys who manipulated or insider trading in Bear Stearns. but, you know, it's been over three years.
0: Okay, now wait, I want to bring you back. So I want you now to explain why the volatility index exists.
1: Okay. The idea is to give an indication as to what the market is suggesting about the future of the market and its expected volatility. When the volatility index, which is a compilation of the -the out-of-the-money calls and the -the out-of-the-money puts on the Standard & Poor's index futures, if it goes up, it generally implies there's quite a bit of uncertainty and expect volatility.
0: But do you think it's an organic, accurate mechanism, given the fact that there's this synthetic manipulation?
1: Well, I think there's more significance ascribed to the VIX than it's worth. But it is a method, and usually what happens is that when the market goes down, the VIX picks up, and usually you get some swings up and down, and then if the VIX goes up some more, the market goes down some more. Okay, but if the market goes up substantially, the Vix goes down substantially. And people try to ascribe the idea that when that Vix goes up, you know, it's time to panic. And a lot of times it's right because when that Vix goes up, that means people are buying puts or buying calls or there's an expression of fear, okay? Now, I was talking to an old friend of mine yesterday, and he says he's in contact with market makers who are in the VIX pit every day making bids and offers in the VIX options. And they tell him it's widely known that Goldman Sachs manipulates the value of the VIX every day. (laughs) And he says that the exchanges know about it and the SEC knows about it. Now, those guys are guys that are not going to come out there because they're working for firms. And it's kind of like understood in the industry that if you know about somebody stealing, you keep your mouth shut.
0: Don't you think it's also true for Standard & Poor's? I remember a year and a half to two years ago, right before the market crash, there were articles coming out about the fact that Standard & Poor's was implicated for conflicts of interest with upgrading paper and giving a higher credit rating to certain companies and being paid to do certain things. Of course, everybody could say this is alleged, but it feels to me like even Standard & Poor's is not an organic mechanism. It still involves human beings. It still involves why a company has a AAA versus a A rating. Could be many things. Maybe certain people in Standard & Poor's don't want to play along with certain groups and unless certain things are done. We don't know that. And I'm not a pessimist.
1: I think that Standard & Poor's gave AAA ratings to a lot of these credit default swaps and things like that that were backed by subprime mortgages, you see. And the people or pension funds like CalPERS and the Louisiana State Employees Retirement Fund, they might have been restricted to buying AAA-rated securities. And so they created these funds, which were baskets of subprime mortgages, and sold them as AAA-rated because they had Standard & Poor's rating them as AAA.
0: Understood.
1: uh, It turned out they weren't AAA. You see, there's a lot of people say that Standard & Poor's was negligent or were being paid to do the reports by the guys who wanted the AAA rating. Now, nobody's been charged with a crime there.
0: So it sounds like you're a whistleblower.
1: Well, I was thinking of actually starting a little organization since I have some market maker friends and things like that. And I actually talked to the SEC, and they said they haven't paid out any money yet, but it only started August 12th. So, you know, the question is, is it worth it to try to do it? Will they, in fact, change their attitude? But if you're really looking for it, and you got guys looking for cheating, you can probably find it pretty regularly. Sounds
0: like you can find it very quick. I want to go back to naked short selling And I want you to explain what it is and why it's relevant in this whole context of what's going on.
1: All right. There are two types of short selling. One is regular short selling, and the other is what they call naked short selling. And we're restricting ourselves to talking about stocks right now. Okay? Okay. Now, regular short selling is if you borrow some shares of stock from people that own the shares and this is facilitated by the clearing firm or your stockbroker. They will lend you shares for you to go sell and you can deliver to the buyer those shares that you borrowed. That's regular short selling. Now, why would you want to do a regular short sale? Because you think that the stock is going to go down. Okay? Now, on the other hand, if you think or have some inside information that the stock's going to go down, you can make a short sale if you're a market maker and you can legally not borrow the shares and fail to deliver the shares that you sold to the buyer. That's called naked short selling. Now, Naked short selling has gotten the blame uh, for being part of a systematic destruction of companies like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers for an organized naked short selling uh, by several people and at the same time putting out negative information about the company. Now Patrick Byrne from Overstock was kind of the leader of that allegation and he claimed that the SEC was comp uh complicit uh, or at least uh wasn't wide awake and identified it. And so naked short selling is illegal. That is, again, the short the selling of stock without owning it and without delivering it to the buyer. Regular short selling is not illegal. It consists of shorting, selling stock that you don't own, but in fact borrowing it from somebody who does, which has been accommodated by the brokerage firm, and delivering those shares.
0: Do you think that it is ethical to borrow a stock that you don't own and sell it? Do you think that this is the way that we should be proceeding in commerce? I just have to ask you this.
1: Well, I'm sure there's people that believe that that should be eliminated altogether.
0: I know that you're deep in the whole field, and I want to know why you do or you don't feel it should be eliminated.
1: Well, when I was a trader, it was a part of uh, the portfolio of things that you can do to reduce the risk. For example, if I'm a market maker and I'm... uh, making bids and offers in some puts. And and people come in and start buying those puts, which they are saying they think the market's going to go down. And I'm selling it to them. That means that I'm getting into a position where I'm betting the market's going to go up. So I can hedge that position by going to do short selling of the stock, okay? And so actually options market makers have an exemption from the naked short selling rule whereby if they are actually market makers who are making markets and want to uh, protect their position of selling uh, puts or having just bought a bunch of calls from somebody, they can do it without uh, borrowing the stock. So if you're going to be a professional uh, sometimes it's necessary to to be able to uh, short sell the stock. If, it's, if you're not going to be allowed to short sell the stock, then it reduces the uh, tightness of your bids and offers that you're going to make in the calls and the puts. Okay, so it's a mechanism which professionals can use to... Uh, manage their risk of uh, their portfolios. Now, whether it should be allowed in general, i uh, th- that's not for me to say. I don't have a view there. Uh, but uh, maybe the world would be better or the markets would be better if they didn't allow uh, short selling. But naked short selling is uh, illegal by most of the public. Now, uh, put... Uh, give you the right to get bearish without borrowing any stock and without even delivering any stock. You only uh, have to deliver stock when you own puts, when you exercise the puts, you, you see. And so uh, this whole argument that naked short selling caused the downfall of Bear Stearns And Lehman Brothers, in my view, is wrong.
0: So what's your view as to why they fell?
1: Because J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and the people that controlled them wanted to eliminate Bear Stearns and perhaps even uh, Lehman Brothers. I don't know how bad their portfolio was, but I know that uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York lent $55 billion dollars to J.P. Morgan based on Bear Stearns' unencumbered collateral of $55 billion. In other words, Bear Stearns collapsed with unencumbered assets, which the Federal Reserve Bank of New York thought was good enough to lend them $55 billion on, but the $55 billion went to J.P. Morgan. You see, it didn't go to Bear Stearns. If they'd have lent the $55 billion to Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns would still be in business.
0: Got it. You
1: see, but that was a way of taking Bear Stearns out of the game and reducing the number of players. And that's what they did. Now, if you go read about the loan to J.P. Morgan, they'll be talking about $30 billion. Well, it was actually one loan for $25 billion which went to Bear Stearns, but was part of the deal that it immediately goes to J P Morgan, and the other thirty billion went directly to J P Morgan, and twenty nine of which is non recourse. In other words, they didn't have to pay it back. All they had to do was uh, let the uh, Fed keep that collateral. But they don't talk about that. They they talk about how J P Morgan paid off their TARP money and and uh, 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 that kind of stuff. But they haven't paid back that $55 billion that they got from the New York Fed, where the CEO of JP Morgan was responsible for making the decision about this uh, bailout. You see? Anyway, I, I think that covers the Naked it Story. Does,
0: it does cover it. All right, I want to go back to your work in Truth and Options. And I want you to talk about the ways in which employee stock options are, for the most part, not utilized and optimized. I want you to explain where you come from about this again. Okay.
1: Companies grant equity compensation to employees, managers, executives, and directors in the form of employee stock options, restricted stock, and other types of uh, com- uh, equity, uh, they grant that in lieu of paying them cash or some other type of uh, compensation. So the employees, the managers, and the executives often get a substantial part of their compensation in the form of these equity compensation, which includes employee stock options, which is the biggest element of the general equity compensation. Now, uh, an average uh, manager of, or an uh, executive or an officer of a a reasonably sized company, perhaps in Silicon Valley, where they do a lot of equity compensation in the form of employee stock options, he may have uh, 75% of his wealth tied to the shares of the company he works for.
0: I want to empower your language, he or she. I know, but... It's okay, but it's I, very, I'm very important. I, I
1: resist change.
0: It's okay, but it's very important that this is in your language, because there are millions of women out there that have employee stock options.
1: Right, well, I okay. apologize. That's I,
0: okay, no it's problem. problem. Okay. No problem.
1: But nevertheless... The companies pile up these people with equity compensation and employee stock options or like the options that are traded on these exchanges. They give you the right to buy the stock at a specific price throughout a specific period of time. However, there are some substantial differences. One is that the employee stock options give you a perhaps 10-year life. In other words, you can hold these employee stock options... Uh, If you were granted it today, you would have the right to buy the stock at a specific price for another 10 years, which would be 2021 somewhere, okay? Whereas the uh, exchange-traded options have a maximum of two or three years uh, to, to expiration. So there's some differences. There's also restrictions on the employee stock options. They can't be sold. They can't be pledged, and they can't even be exercised until they vest uh, because there's this period between the grant date and the time that the employee actually fully owns the options, which is called the vesting period. And until he stays at the company in good standing, those options do not vest, and he can't exercise them, whereas uh, exchange-traded options – can be sold the day you you know the next day or exercised the next day, so there's, there's substantial similarities, but there's substantial differences. Now, uh, exchange traded options, if you wanted to reduce the risk of holding them, you can just sell them all or part of them, you know, in five minutes. Whereas, equity compensation, until they vest, you can't even exercise. them I and you can't sell them at all, and employee stock options can never be sold.
0: you think that most employees know that, John?
1: I think yeah, they know they they can't sell them, they know there's vesting restrictions and they know that they uh, they're risky. However, they don't know the value of them, and they don't know the probability of losing that value, okay? And they certainly don't know, in my view, how to manage them unless these people have master's degrees in finance and understand something about uh, trading uh, but the companies really don't want their employees and even their executives uh, that is uh, C- uh, CFOs and uh, vice presidents and people like that they don't really understand what they have okay Cause, uh, and therefore they don't know the, the true value of them. And the companies themselves want to give an impression that those options are less valuable than they really are because there's a lot of, uh, uh, these days, there's a lot of uh, observation about the the Amounts of money that executives have made as a result of their equity compensation, and these people, who are the officers and the CEOs they don 't they want to downplay that amount, and so when they value these options for their financial statements, they artificially value them lower than they 're really worth
0: but how do you, as a company, help employees? optimize these options? One, as I understand you've just said, by having them understand in a different way the true value of them. But then what?
1: Well, you see, because of the restrictions of selling and vesting and uh, restrictions against pledging for collateral or putting into a margin account, because of that, it becomes more difficult to manage them Unless you do, unless you go to the exchange traded markets and hedge them, or you can even call it insurance, you can buy insurance against losing their value. For example, if I uh, were were granted some employee stock options to buy Google at $300 a share uh, six years ago, and those options still have four years of time to expiration, and I haven't exercised them yet. And the stock's at 500. Well, I have a nice big profit in there. Okay, now, uh, those options have more value than the difference between the exercise price and the current market price. In other words, if I have the right to buy the stock at 300 and it's trading at 500... You can subtract 300 from 500 and you say, Well, those things are worth 200. Well, they're worth 200 plus some additional value, which has to do with a number of factors. Uh, And and often, if the the stock's volatile and there's still a good bit of time remaining to expiration and interest rates are relatively high or normally high, then the amount that's a value that's there in addition to the what we call the in-the-money amount, is large. And if you exercise those options prematurely, then you are forfeiting quite a bit of the value of your options. And if you want to manage it efficiently such that you end up with the most money, pay the little, the, lo- the smallest amount of taxes, and have the least amount of risk while doing it, You can go to the exchange-traded markets where I stood on for 10 years buying and selling options and hedging my position sometimes by doing short-selling. You see? But people can go ahead and go to those exchange-traded options and go protect the large value they may have. Okay? However, that maximal... Uh, management of those options adds to the cost to the company. You, you see? And so they don't want people to manage them so that they end up by getting the most money with the least amount of risk. They want them to have their... Uh, the, they want them to be at risk and if they want to reduce the risk, they want them to pay a good big penalty in the in the form of forfeiting part of the value and paying an early tax now when the people exercise those options early the company gets a bet, two, three benefits they get part of the value forfeited back to them and they do get they also get two cash flows one of which comes from the exercise price and another that comes from the fact that they can deduct the difference between the exercise price and the market price from their taxes, as a uh, as if it, if they actually paid the comp- the employee cash. And so, and there, there's a lot of controversy right now uh, where Senator Levine is out there promoting again uh, the 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 uh, elimination of of uh, some of the benefits tax-wise that the companies are taking as a result of these early exercises you, you see so so the companies understand that if the employees manage those grants of compensation whether they they are options which is the largest element and the most uh uh difficult to understand uh, the value of uh those The company doesn't want them to to manage them maximally because it raises the cost and they lose some substantial benefits if they exercise early. The company gets substantial benefits. And so you have the whole industry uh, of wealth management and advisors are afraid to tell the employees what's the best way to go because they're going to... uh, Get heat from the companies. For example, if you're Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or Schwab or or Merrill, you want, you know, they actually act as investment bankers for a number of companies. And so they are acting as investment bankers and at the same time acting as advisors to these companies. grantees who are or these employees who are holding large amounts of compensation. And so they have a conflict of interest. Obviously. So, obviously. What they do is they try to stop the people from maximally uh, managing these things because they want them to manage them in a manner which benefits the company.
0: Why is it that there's one of you? Why is there? Because there's only a few people that have
1: traded and who have actually also taken upon the task of understanding this arena of employee stock options. And guys that are very good at trading, probably over the years, piled up enough money, they don't have to fight companies in something obscure like employee stock options. But I got on to it a few years ago, and I wrote a book called Getting Started in Employee Stock Options, which is published by Wiley and Son. And I published it along with uh, John Sumer. But it's the only book that's out there that tells you how to optimally manage your employee stock options. And uh, most of those people in the industry think that, well, to get people to do hedges uh, by selling calls or buying puts while they're holding employee stock options or restricted stock is too difficult. And for... uh uh Uh, some people, and most of the time, that's true. And and the reason is it's too difficult because they don't understand what they have. And the reason they don't understand what they have is because nobody's telling them what they have. And the reason they're not telling them what they have is because they don't want them to understand what they have.
0: If you're hedging the true value of these employee stock options, if you're an employee and you decide to manage these options, first of all, does the company let you manage them? Are they yours to manage? What are the politics of that and what is the uh, authority of that?
1: When the options are granted to the employees, there's two documents that govern the terms of this contract. You see, what they have is a contract with the company. The company is obligated to sell them shares at a specific price throughout a specific period of time, and they have the right to buy, if they want to, those shares at a specific price. And they they are subject to all the restrictions that are in the contract. Now, one of those documents is called the stock plan document, and the other one is called um, a a specific... uh, option agreement, which outlines the specifics as to how many options are granted, what's the exercise price, what's the date of the grant, when they vest, and so you have these two documents, and uh, and they, they they are the documents that constitute the contract that the employee has with the company. Now, that governs what the employees or the grantees can do. Most of the companies don't have any prohibition against managing those options or their stock effectively or optimally. But the companies really don't want them to do it and, and kind of frown on doing it because they they allege that it defeats the purpose of the options grant, and they find other reasons to uh, justify uh, frowning on it. But most of the contracts, and those are the documents that govern what they can do, do not prohibit maximally uh, managing them by what we call hedging. And uh, so uh, they can do it. Uh, they, uh, it's a matter of just going to a brokerage firm and selling calls or buying puts. And if you don't, if you've never had a brokerage account and your positions are quite small, it, it's not for you. But it's for the people who have been there a while, who have substantial value in these options and have. Uh, have uh, some awareness of what they have and what the risks are and want to get the most with the least amount of risk. And so uh, there are people out there that are capable of of advising executives. Now, you can look at people like uh, Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison or John Chambers or... A number of the real premium executives and look at how they manage their employees stock options and they do it right okay I'm just trying to tell the vast amount of people what uh, the ways that uh, John Chambers and Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs uh, are told to manage their employees stock options and that is to hold them to the end now, whether they are hedging it, I don't know, because I don't see all the the trading they do. You, you're only uh, uh, restricted to uh, to seeing what they're reporting to the SEC. But most of the people are not given the same advice as those top executives are.
0: So, people should call you, correct?
1: Yeah, they can call me, and I'll tell them how to do it even better than uh, the guys that are telling that uh, John Chambers and. Uh, and uh, Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs and uh, James Diamond. That's so how they're doing it. I mean, I I can improve on I can I can improve on that. There, but you know, there's a lot of politics, and and they uh, they uh, if if Steve Jobs gets out there and starts hedging his positions, uh, then that's going to say to the uh, lower rung people, hey, maybe I ought to hedge mine you see and so he doesn't uh, hedge they just keep they assume the risk because they got so much money anyway you know what's the difference a hundred million dollars to Steve Jobs you know so uh, but they do it effectively and whether they're hedging and reducing risk I don't know but the the guy that has uh, 75% or 80% or 90% of his wealth built up uh, in the shares of a company ought to be concerned with reducing risk. And if he wants to do it, he ought to do it efficiently. And so that's what I do. I try to tell them what to do efficiently so that they'll end up with the most money with the least risk.
0: I'm sure that you've had consultations to help employees who have stock options or equity compensation, yeah. and they want you to manage the fund or to trade or to do something. Can you do that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, they can give you discretion.
0: My question is, can you do it? Aside from consulting, do you actually do it, what needs to be done, or do you set them up? Either way. Okay. I, I
1: can deal with their broker, or I can tell them how to do it themselves, or they can just say, you do it for me, and I'll uh, see what you did.
0: Okay, got it.
1: In other words, they give you a trading authority over the account. And, uh, and so the brokerage firm will take orders from me to... Uh, sell this particular one at a certain price on a certain day, and uh, or buy some puts. Or there's a, there's a, there's an interesting uh, strategy of buying the puts, which gives you protection against drops inside of an IRA. Because a lot of times people might not have cash hanging around uh, to buy puts, but they might have some cash in their IRA. Uh, and so they can just uh, use that cash, and any gains they make is tax deferred or tax free.
0: When you're buying puts inside an IRA, to what extent is it gambling? Well,
1: it's actually reducing the risk.
0: Talk about why. Uh,
1: if you have some stock options or some restricted stock to buy, uh, say, uh, Apple, and the stock has gone from uh, 190 to 370 or something like that. And, uh, and you had a right to buy two thousand shares at uh, one hundred and ninety, and it's three seventy. You got quite a bit of money there. Now, if the stock goes back to one hundred and ninety because the market goes way down, then you've uh, you have some money left, but you have a lot less. You might have uh, you know twenty percent of the value of when the stock was. Uh, 370. So you can buy puts or sell calls or do both in combination to, in fact, uh, reduce the risk and uh, of uh, of the stock going down again and you losing back what you otherwise would have made.
0: How many people do you think there are who have the breadth of experience and expertise and integrity that you do in the field? None. You don't think there's maybe a handful or two of people like you?
1: There's guys at uh, Goldman Sachs that are real professionals that are doing this. There's people that that are giving advice to top guys. And uh, there was an article in the New York Times about, oh, six months ago, where 475 of the top executives at Goldman Sachs were hedging their employees' stock options and their uh, restricted stock by selling calls, which is exactly what I would say to do, although you can buy puts too and this and that. But uh, they were doing what I said to do. And so there was a lot of commotion about, well, uh, uh, the uh, Goldman Sachs executives shouldn't be allowed to do that, but they were doing it and, and they didn't, uh, change their mind. Why were they doing it? Because it was the right thing to do. They were reducing risk and uh, 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 not forfeiting value back to the company. And so there are people out there that generally uh, know how to do it. And, and I might be able to prove uh, just slightly on the guys that really know because of some uh, idea or quickness or experience might be a little uh, slightly better that's all but there, there are people out there that uh, if you want to pay enough you don't need to pay me <laughs> you can get it uh, but most of the guys uh, that are acting as wealth managers or investment advisors to uh, grantees uh, they're not competent to do it in my view because most of them have never traded. They've never had to manage a portfolio of options or stock and try to reduce the risk. They don't know how to do that. And, uh, and they're dealing with customers that they have to convince to let them do it, too. You see, so uh, so anyway, I, I really don't know but I, uh, how many people that are highly competent at doing it, but I don't think it's very uh, many because I never see them show up in any uh, discussion forum. I think that there are some people out there, because top executives, there are some that get the the best advice.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to say? Because I think we're pretty much close to the end here.
1: Kim, I enjoyed talking to you, and uh, you seem to have gotten a lot of uh, understanding of some really obscure things uh, to be able to ask me these questions, and I hope (laughs) uh, that your listeners get something from it. I think we touched on some current events, and some current concepts.
0: Well, I want to thank you for being our guest, ladies and gentlemen. We have been talking with, learning from, and listening to John Olegas. He is the founder of Truth in Options, Stock Options Consultants. You can reach him by going to optionsforemployees.com, and please do pick up his book, Give us the name of your book again, please.
1: It's called Getting Started in Employee Stock Options. It's published by Wiley & Sons, and you can buy it at Barnes & Nobles. It's uh, less than $20.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for tuning in. John, thank you for being our guest, and we look forward to you coming back when we have a few people in finance who can all come together via teleconference and actually bring the show into a whole systems perspective. Thanks again.
1: Thank you, Kim.